You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. CISA says U.S. federal agencies are now largely in compliance with Log4j risk mitigation guidance. The FTC issues advice on a warning on Log4j to U.S. businesses. A skimmer is installed through cloud-delivered video. The Vice Society's ransomware is meddling with supermarket operations in the U.K. The Atlantic Council offers advice on strategy for the gray zone. Hacktivists are expected to punish greenwashing in 2022. Caleb Barlow on recent FBI PIN about how ransomware operators are looking for material, non-public information to improve their chances of being paid. Our guest is Helen Patton from Cisco on her book, Navigating the Cybersecurity Career Path. And James Pond is the CEO of Hybrid War. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Elliot Peltzman, filling in for Dave Bittner, with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, January 5th, 2022. Hey, everybody. Have you seen the latest video from Xinhua, in which the Chinese organs poke some fun at Anglo-American animate versions about the security risk Huawei gear imposes on its customers? If not, hop over there and give it a listen. It's called No Time to Die Laughing, and it's a swell James Bond parody. What a beautiful castle for a secret rendezvous, Agent 0.07. Why the American accent, Agent 0.06. I'm practicing for my new mission in America. By the way, why do you own nothing, Pong? I mean, no house, no property, no stocks, shares, or bonds. Because a super spy always prefers to stay low-key. Ah, is it because M has asked us to become more open to stay secret? Squeeze me. So, okay, the respective American and British accents are pretty indistinguishable. But, hey, we'd be utterly hopeless if we took a shot at Mandarin and Cantonese. So we're certainly not going to cast the first linguistic stone. That would be, what would you say, Agent 0.07? You're pedantic. And you're pathetic. Do you know what's pathetic? Pedantic and pathetic. Anyway, this stuff totally kills. If it were on TikTok, it would be the CEO of Comedy Gold. 
All right, back to the news you can use. CISA says that large U.S. federal agencies met the risk mitigation deadlines of ED22-02. The U.S. FTC gives businesses a warning that they're at risk of regulatory and legal action if they're not comparably diligent in approaching the problem. CISA has reported good progress toward federal agency risk mitigation. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, that's CISA, has told Meritalk that the federal agencies it oversees have substantially complied with Emergency Directive 22-02, which required that they take specified actions to mitigate risk by December 23rd, and that they report their status by December 28th. A CISA spokesperson said, quote, Agencies have reacted with significant urgency to successfully remediate assets running vulnerable Log4j libraries, even over the holiday season, or to mitigate the majority of affected applications identified that support solution stacks that accept data input from the Internet. CISA has received status reports from all large agencies, which have either patched or deployed alternate mitigations to address the risk from thousands of Internet-connected assets, the focus of the recent emergency directive, end quote. Full mitigation of the risk remains, of course, a work in progress, and no one expects an overnight resolution of this complex, widespread, and deeply rooted issue. The FTC isn't about to let businesses forget their responsibility to address the Log4j vulnerabilities either. In what might be regarded as doing for the U.S. private sector what CISA did for the country's public sector, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission yesterday gave the businesses it regulates, and that's most of them, some direct advice on how seriously they ought to take the recently discovered Log4j vulnerabilities. Quote, The duty to take reasonable steps to mitigate known software vulnerabilities implicates laws including, among others, the Federal Trade Commission Act and the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. It is critical that companies and their vendors relying on Log4j act now in order to reduce the likelihood of harm to consumers and to avoid FTC legal action. End quote. The Commission's advisory includes a pointed reminder of what happened to Equifax when the Credit Bureau's failure to patch Apache struts was implicated in a data breach that compromised information on some 147 million individuals. You'll recall that Equifax eventually agreed to pay $700 million to settle claims by the FTC, its sister agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and regulatory bodies in each of the 50 states. With that regulatory hammer poised, the FTC suggests that companies scan their systems for vulnerable instances of Log4j. Once that's done, they recommend updating Log4j software to the most current version, and then following CISA's guidance on mitigation. Having done that, businesses should, quote, ensure remedial steps are taken to ensure that your company's practices do not violate the law. Failure to identify and patch instances of this software may violate the FTC Act, end quote. And finally, businesses should distribute this information to what the FTC characterizes as, quote, any relevant third-party subsidiaries that sell products or services to consumers who may be vulnerable, end quote. 
You can follow the CyberWire's full coverage of the Log4j story on our website. Researchers at Palo Alto Network's Unit 42 have found criminals exploiting a cloud video platform to infect a real estate company's websites with form-jacking skimmer malware. The skimmer was so placed in a video that it was injected into sites that downloaded the content. Researchers assess the skimmer itself as highly polymorphic, elusive, and continuously evolving. The data the skimmer collected included names, email addresses, phone numbers, and credit card information. Palo Alto identified neither the platform nor the company, but Recorded Future did, reporting that the video platform was Brightcove and the affected business was Sotheby's real estate unit. The relatively new ransomware gang, Vice Society, first observed in 2021, has claimed responsibility for an attack against about 600 SPAR supermarkets in the UK. Tech Monitor says that observers believe the gang uses the print nightmare vulnerability as its preferred mode of access to its victims. Young though they may be, the Vice Society has already acquired a reputation for ruthlessness and lack of discrimination in its target selection. Hitting schools and hospitals as often as it hits commercial enterprises. We're not saying, of course, that ransomware attacks against supermarkets are somehow okay, but it's been part of conventional gangland hypocrisy to claim, often falsely, that, oh no, we'd never meddle with healthcare. The Vice Society isn't even paying that much tribute to virtue. Where are the hoods located? It's unclear, but they may have some connection to the longer-established Hello Kitty group, and that outfit is believed to operate from Ukraine. As Presidents Putin and Biden prepare to meet next week in Switzerland, Reuters reports that NATO's foreign ministers also intend to meet to develop the Atlantic Alliance's response to the threat Russia currently poses to Ukraine. An Atlantic Council policy paper recommends that the U.S. recognize that, like it or not, this is effectively a period of hybrid war, both cyber and kinetic, and the U.S. ought to act accordingly. Quote, The U.S. Department of Defense needs to compete now and engage in offensive hybrid warfare actions. The United States must respond where competition with China and Russia is taking place today primarily by playing an enhanced role in gray zone competition, end quote. There is and has been, it must be noted, a lot of loose talk about war and cyber war, where the concept of conflict is difficult to apply literally and unhelpful as a metaphor. But the Atlantic Council is thinking here in terms of the old spectrum of conflict, in which hybrid war occupies a kind of gray zone falling between espionage and clear, undeniable kinetic military operations. Hybrid war includes some deniable kinetic action, but more importantly, it includes offensive cyber operations that go beyond simple surveillance and collection to more directly disruptive action. The Atlantic Council explains, quote, Accordingly, the Pentagon must embrace the paradigm of competition as a continuum from cooperation through competition to armed conflict. But embracing the continuum is not enough. The DOD, working with interagency partners where appropriate, must defend more aggressively and take offensive actions in the gray zone, consistent with American values, end quote. From the Russian and Chinese points of view, of course, 
The U.S. is probably up to no good here already, right alongside the mother country of the U.K. and the other three of the Five Eyes as well. You can get that message from Agents 0.07 and 0.06, courtesy of Xinhua. M has even named our single greatest priority at MI6. Russia? Yes. Assange escaped? Snowden's arrested? Nope, and nope. For now, China is our top priority. And what have the Chinese done? Well, according to this dossier, their national security agency was authorized to monitor all phone and internet use in 193 countries. That's bloody outrageous. Is there anything China doesn't watch over? Indeed, it's preposterous. And it says here that China's propaganda machine was already very mature since World War One, and today broadcasts in 47 languages and releases over 700 English language films every year. I didn't know China produced English language films. Oh, wait, wait, good grief. That's not China we're talking about. That's America. Excuse me again. And finally, a University of Delaware study suggests that hacktivists may, in 2022, increasingly hit companies they feel are guilty of greenwashing. That is, falsely and publicly claiming corporate social responsibility as a core value, but then failing to live up to their pious brand placement. So if you're going to talk the talk, think about walking the walk. What do you say to that, Agent 0.07? Yabba dabba do. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Helen Patton is an advisory CISO at Cisco and author of the new book, Navigating the Cybersecurity Career Path. The book provides guidance and advice for cybersecurity pros at all levels, from those just starting out to those looking to move up the ladder. Helen Patton joins us with these insights. 
I started writing it about two years ago while I was the CISO at the Ohio State University. And one of the things about being a CISO in higher ed is more than other verticals, I think people reach out to you and say, how do I get into cybersecurity? How do I deal with this? And I found myself doing lots of mentoring sessions, having coffee with people, not only about getting into cyber, but also how do I how do I deal with this thing now that I'm in cyber or I'm just taking on a new team for the first time? How do I do that? How do I run a security program? That kind of thing. And I was drinking too much caffeine. I was jittery all the time. Like (laughs) there, there weren't enough coffee shops to be able to deal with the volume. So I thought it would be a good thing for me to do to write down the questions I'm always getting asked and I'm sure every cyber mentor out there gets asked the same questions and to put my thoughts down on paper about the answers to those questions. And so that was the genesis of the book was really mentoring at scale. Um, And uh, I had a lot of help from a lot of other security people along the way. So I'm, I'm really excited the book's coming out now. It's a good thing. Why do you suppose there is, I guess you could say, a certain amount of ambiguity when it comes to people navigating their career path in cybersecurity? It strikes me that it's different than, say, the pathway to becoming an accountant or a doctor. Or, you <laughs> sure know, there, there are more. There's more clarity in those. Is it, why do you suppose uh, that people aren't quite so sure of how to set up down that pathway? I think there's a few things that are going on and, and you're right. First of all, we don't have a professional structure like other business professional things, doctors, accountants, lawyers and so forth. So there's no clear learning path or certification path for cybersecurity people to follow. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is, of course, it's, it's a comparatively younger, it's, it's a comparatively younger profession and it's growing. So you For example, when I talk to college students, they're often saying things like, I want to work in security. And my first question is, when you say the word security, what comes to mind? When you say you want to work in security, what does it mean? And and more often than not, they have to take a step back and go, oh, and depending on what kind of technology background they have, that's that's their entry point. So if they're in software development, they think of software security. If they're doing um, engineering building, they might think IoT security, for example. Very few people come to me and say, I want to work in security and they're thinking about it in terms of compliance or public policy or GRC. And when you say those things are out there, they're like, oh, I didn't even realise that was part of the profession. So I think there's this big misunderstanding outside of the security profession of what's in cybersecurity. And just like Eight Blind Men and the Elephant, depending how you how you first come into contact with cybersecurity, that's what you think cybersecurity is. And it's much bigger than that. So I think that the the questions that I and other mentors get is really just people trying to better understand what the profession is and what the pathways to the profession might be because there is no commonly understood way of dealing with getting into or moving within cybersecurity as a, as a career. Did you find that you had any revelations of your own going through the process of writing the book, you know, clarifying, organizing your own thoughts? Were there any surprises for you? Yeah, there were actually. And and it it did come about because even though it took me a couple of years to write it, I've been blogging for a number of years before that. And so 
some of the genesis of the books was me trying to formalise what I'd already blogged about for a while. One of the things that I had to learn as a security person and as a CISO was how to tell stories that were that were meaningful to the people listening, not the stories that were meaningful to me, but how do I tell a story that the audience wants to hear? Hmm. And I started using that as an influencing tool and a leadership tool. But as I was writing the book, it really became reinforced to me that this is a core skill for working in security, whether you're just starting out and you've got to tell your story about why you want to work in security, or whether you're in the middle of dealing being a single contributor, but you've got to influence people who don't report to you about the kinds of things you need them to be doing as a security pro or as a leader leading a team or trying to develop a security program in an organisation. So um, I had known before I started writing that storytelling was important, but it helped clarify for me how important it is and also how to do the storytelling. Um, it, it, it's easy to say, go tell a story, but not everybody is inherently a storyteller. So there are skills to learn about how do you structure what you talk about. And that was really important and a, and a big learning thing for me too. And it actually helped me land this job that I have now, uh, now that I've moved away from being an operational CISO as well. That's Cisco's Helen Patton. She's author of the new book, Navigating the Cybersecurity Career Path. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Caleb Barlow. Caleb, it's always great to have you back on the show. Um, you know, we've gotten some recent notices from the FBI about ransomware operators and how they're uh, looking for information from public companies. Um, I wanted to check in with you. This is a world you're familiar with about uh, if I'm a board member on, on a company, should I be concerned about this? Well, so this was a recent uh, private industry notification from the FBI that was marked TLP White, so that means we can talk about it. In this case, mm. the incident discusses where ransomware operators are focusing on public companies, but before locking up the workstations during their reconnaissance phase, they're doing intensive searches for keywords, including things like Newswire, MarketWire, and 10K, to look for specifically financial documents and announcements of things that haven't yet been publicly released. Now, some of these draft documents would probably become public over time, but the timing of which is critical as material non-public information can have a pretty dramatic impact on a company's stock price and trading activity. And the point here is that these ransomware operators are starting to recognize that releasing 
material non-public information about a company can put, well, additional pressure on the C-suite and the board to likely pay a ransom. Is this the kind of thing, and forgive me, this is not a world that I'm terribly familiar with. Could an organization get in trouble, say, with the SEC if information is released uh, prematurely? Well, absolutely. And I can tell you, as a public company CEO, these documents are drafted all the time. And many of them never see the light of day. Acquisitions that don't go through, strategies that change, deals that don't close. The point here is nothing's done until it's done. And when it's done, the whole idea is everybody at a public company finds out about the news at the same time so people can trade the company equally and fairly. So when information leaks out, even if it's a rumor, it might stop an acquisition from occurring. It might change something that a company is going to do because the last thing that company wants to do is have a leak of material information about what they're going to do next that only gets to a certain subset of their investors. Somebody, you know, initiates trading activity on it, and now we've got a problem. So how should organizations prepare for this possibility? Well, first of all, I think what we've got to recognize is this represents a real escalation in the level of sophistication of bad actors. You know, I mean, you joke on the cyberware all the time about bad actors that can, you know, speak in broken English. These are folks that can read a 10K, understand the legal and privacy and investment risks, and understand how boards are going to react to it. So that, that's the first thing we've got to recognize. I think some things think people need to do. So first off, boards need to use your corporate systems, not the systems, the emails, or storage from their other companies or efforts. And this is a big deal because boards are usually made up of people from other places. So hmm. consider issuing them specific iPads or other equipment only used for their work on the board so that your board information is not sitting in some other company. And of course, encrypt everything, multi-factor, EDR and XDR and everything. And, you know, probably the biggest thing, and boards are usually in tune to this, think about what you put in an email. You know, boards are usually in tune to this because everything can get, you know, uh, become discoverable that a board does. But old right. documents are nuclear assets, right? So you've got to have record retention in place, get rid of things when it's legal to get rid of them, and be careful about what you keep and what you put in an email. All right, so worst case scenario, this does happen to my organization. What do you do next? Well, this is where crisis communication comes in place. And I'm not talking about normal communication, Dave. I'm talking about crisis communication. If something like this happens, you want to control the message you want to be able to get your message out to overcome that of the adversary or whatever information they're peddling, whether it's true or not, you need to have the ability to get in front of this in a hurry and communicate what's going on. So plan ahead of time, right? This is not, uh, not a game time call you want to be making. No, it's another thing you want to have in your run book is a, you know, a plan for what happens if someone tries to manipulate our material non-public information or release it. All right. Well, Caleb Barlow, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker too. 
The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our amazing CyberWire team is Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Dave Bittner, and I'm Elliot Peltzman. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.